0: Hello and welcome back to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian kodik and I am here with Joel Dolquist Coolboy.
1: Hi, Joel. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I'm good. We have microphones. Yes. Now you have a microphone. Actual proper expensive microphones. So we are
0: legit as they come. So keep it tuned. So we have an exciting little program for everyone today. Another three topics headed your way. We are going to start with the place of arbitration, which is a topic Joel will try to conquer in a bit of a one-on-one fashion, but just to kind of give you an idea of What's implicated when you make this choice of the place of arbitration or the seat of arbitration? And then I will rendezvous with the issue of evidence, but most specifically, this wonderful schedule called the Redfern schedule that we all know and love. And then we'll finally wrap it up with our happy fun time topic, which will be uh, arbitration in pop culture. So we've done some research, which was painstaking research, uh, to look into TV, podcasts, movies, uh, just to see how arbitration comes up and what we think about it.
1: Yeah, that's weeks of research.
0: Weeks. So the did pressure you, is,
1: is, is tremendous.
0: Did you uh, did you know about the it, these topics before? I got this comment uh, from some people. They said, do you read up on the topics that you discuss on the podcast? There's this off the top of your head. So what's your answer?
1: Uh, it's a little bit of both. I think we we put that on the website or I did in an FAQ that we might make mistakes because there's simply no time for us to, to research as well as most lawyers would like to being lawyers. But that being said, you have to do or I have to do at least a little bit of research to make sure that I don't make shit up as we talk.
0: Right. But I also think that you have a better recall button as far as like case names. I think in one of our last episodes, you talked about your favorite case, which I thought was pretty funny.
1: Yeah, that's the virtues of being an academic. You have right. a lot of spare time to read on stuff that's, you know, it's not really relevant for what you're doing, but it makes you feel good because you're doing at least something. And also from teaching, to be fair, because we have this master's program going every year, so I, I every year I do a lot of on a regular basis. I teach different things, right? And, and there's maybe more cases. exposed to. Yeah, you're maybe more exposed to like the handful of cases that you're working on at any given point in time, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, do you think that the microphones will improve the substance of what we're saying, too? Or is it just the, <laughs> the sound and the quality?
0: It's called... Give them the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't listen. Just kidding. Oh. Nice. It's conference season. Don't forget it's conference season. Um, oh. We talked about this in the last podcast, namely really going into detail what we think people should do at conferences. But uh, we talked about in the last... Well, now it's conference season. So we have a um, the IBA conference coming up. I was looking, there's conferences um, all over Europe going on in October. Are you going to anything in October?
1: I'm going to The Hague to a very scholarly conference called Unseen Adjudicators in International Dispute Resolution or something like that. Otherwise, I'm trying to stay away. But I've been really, really, really wanting to go to a handful of other things as well. You could easily do conferencing full-time full-time at least for the upcoming six to eight weeks
0: well that's really our goal with this podcast is to conference full-time and bring the podcast with us (laughs) that's right unseen adjudicators we'll have to you'll have to report back on that because that sounds interesting
1: i will it really does i i can honestly say that i've never been as psyched and thrilled for a conference before maybe 25 presentations including poster presentations when junior people like myself and uh, speak more informally about the research. I'm very interested in those. And normally, you know, if you go to a conference, it's one or two things maybe that will get your interest up a little bit more than usual. But this this time I, I will be really, really focused for two and a half days. Wow, that's pretty good. And then everyone going anywhere.
0: <clears throat> I'm not. I will be in London for client meetings, uh, but I will not be anywhere um but i bet london will be empty because everyone will be traveling down under that's my best australian voice uh to the iba conference and i was looking at this at the program it was almost illegible um the amount of meetings and conferences and seminars i do you know how to navigate such a such a program no have you have you even <laughs> looked at the program it's it looks no, like I a haven't. phone book it's but like, it's
1: wider, isn't it, in terms of substance? It's not yeah, it's not arbitra- just arbitration. It's for, no, it's the International Bar Association, so it's for right. attorneys everywhere.
0: Yeah, it is. But that's in
1: Sydney, and then the ICCA is also in Sydney in right. the spring. Right, right. So there that's must crazy. be some... It's like, uh... it's like hosting the Olympics and then the World Cup in <laughs> soccer or something, the same year. <laughs> I love that you just equated arbitration to the Olympics. <laughs> Maybe we
0: should have that. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, before we get into many tangents, let's move on to the first topic.
1: So place of arbitration or the seat of arbitration, as Brian said, yeah, you can really use either phrase, is essentially a legal construct, which is important to keep in mind. Yeah, it's a legal fiction, really. And I think many people tend to confuse the place of the seat of arbitration with the place where the the hearings are actually held. And that was historically, I think, the same thing. I remember when I studied uh, private international law in law school, like seven, eight, ten years ago, uh, the relatively old book, which, by the way, was the only book I read on arbitration during my four and a half years in Swedish law school. Yeah, because you guys said, don't study it at all. No, not unless you you actively choose to like go abroad or take a special course but there were no such courses available at my law school. Right. I think that's getting better though but uh, 10 years ago that was impossible. Right. So anyway in this textbook they said that the place of arbitration is usually chosen uh, based on considerations like flight schedules, hotels and geographical location in terms of where are the parties and the arbitrators. And that's simply not true because the place of arbitration, at least nowadays, as it is understood under most modern arbitration rules and legislation, is a legal construct. So it doesn't really have anything to do with where you have the hearings. It's very common that you have the place of arbitration in city X for legal purposes, and then you have the hearings in jurisdiction or city Y. But every international arbitration must have a legal place of arbitration, which really gives it a legal anchor. And that applies also to investment arbitration when they are not under the ICSID convention system, because I think we mentioned this previously, the ICSID convention does not have a place of arbitration. It's a self enclosed system under international law. But you have a lot of treaty arbitrations that are conducted under non icsid rules. And then the same logic applies as in any international commercial arbitration. And this place of arbitration serves many purposes, legally speaking. First of all, you get the lex arbitri, i.e. the law applicable to the arbitration agreement, uh, which is important when you have disputes over the scope of the arbitration agreement, you get an applicable law. But you also get the mandatory norms of that state, which essentially forms the, the outer boundaries, so to speak, of the regulatory norm for any commercial arbitration. So you, you get uh, the, the key norms that you cannot deviate from. What is an example Later. of like a mandatory norm? Well, it depends. That's sort of the point. It depends on uh, the, the jurisdiction in question. But right. it depends, like questions of arbitrability, the way we understand that phrase outside of the U.S., where it means something else. Yeah. So things that you cannot go to arbitration over, like, you know, public law dimension disputes or criminal matters and that kind of thing. Uh, If you cannot under uh, the law in in state Y, you cannot go to arbitration over criminal law, then the arbitration agreement is, is null and void probably under the Lex Arbitri. But you also get, which is very important, you also get the domestic courts in the place of arbitration. Uh, as acting as sort of a supervisory supervisory uh, bodies over the pr- proceedings and like a supportive so, body as well
0: you know if yes, you need for absolutely. intermeasures or but maybe you're going into that
1: no but that, yeah that's a very good point if you, that's normally where you could go to get things enforced during the proceedings and in some cases if it's an ad hoc arbitration for example the domestic courts tend to be very much involved because you don't have an institution to hear challenges against arbitrators and do other practical things. So
0: if there's a challenge to an arbitrator with an unzertral arbitration, you go to the jurist, do you go to the domestic courts to challenge that? Yeah, if you don't
1: have, I mean, normally in the big run of the mill cases, you don't always, well, I think it's pretty seldom now. I don't really know uh, but from anecdotal evidence, I don't think it's very common that you have a, a non arbitration without any kind of administering body anymore. Right, right, right. But if you don't...
0: Then That's you interesting.
1: Go to your... Yeah, and I, I know mostly of investment treaty cases and most of those non-central cases. There are a few very early pure ad hoc cases, like the Meyer case, the first one, first big one in Sweden, where you did not uh, have any... Well, actually, they had an appointing authority in the SEC. But anyway, the most common now, even if it's known to total arbitration, is that the parties agree to have an administering institution simply because it's much more convenient. But if they don't, ultimately, uh, the domestic courts will have to be involved at some point. And most importantly, maybe, you have to challenge the award if you want to challenge the award at the place of arbitration in before the domestic courts in that place of arbitration. And that's huge, I think. Yes. That's a huge impact. It really is. Also because they then of course reply their own domestic arbitration law. So the place of arbitration really matters when it comes to the challenge stage of the award. Uh, But it also in terms of enforcement, it gives, the place of arbitration gives the award a nationality. At least according to the most established understanding. There's a lot of well, primarily academic discussions, I think, over the whether or not international arbitration is delocalized. So the most common and established understanding uh, under the New York Convention is that an arbitration that is seated in state X also gets the nationality, so to speak, of uh, state X for enforcement purposes. So if it's seated in Geneva, it's a Swiss award, Meaning that, for example, if the Swiss courts decide to set aside the award, it no longer exists and cannot be enforced. But there are people, especially in France, historically, once again, France comes back as as the arbitration-friendly place number number one, arguing that since international arbitration is international, you can enforce an award even if it has been set aside at the place of arbitration because it's not a Swiss award in our example, it's an international award. So even if the Swiss courts decide to set it aside, that's up to them, the award still survives and can be enforced elsewhere under the New York convention. And
0: I think that, because when this came up before, we talked about the rest judicata elements of it. And when we were discussing that, we said that it wasn't a if the award was rendered in Switzerland, that it wasn't a Swiss award for purposes of rest judicata because the, you know, the second court reviewing that would then apply their own rules. And I think that's kind of what the Paris courts are thinking in that sense, that this is not a Swiss judgment. This is a international arbitration award, and we
1: will determine what we can do with it in international courts. Yes, but the, the key phrase in the New York Convention is, is may, of course, may set aside or if ref- sorry may refuse to enforce an award if it has been set aside or declared invalid under the law at the place of arbitration right but they only may do so so it's it's pro enforcement the new york convention in the sense that the enforcing court nevertheless has the discretion to to go ahead and recognize or enforce the award even if it has been declared invalid under the law at the place of arbitration right and these award creditors need all the help they can get Yes. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so do you have any experience in negotiating or or, or uh, researching place of arbitration in, in commercial contracts? I would imagine that's something that's important to commercial lawyers negotiating contracts. Or do you normally come in at the stage where you already have these things set down?
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're in the disputes team, then you're I mean, the contract is already there. But we sometimes get uh, like M&A people or a any type of contract negotiation, and they will contact you and say, hey, can you look over this arbitration clause? Like, tell me what you think. And we will raise that issue. But at that point, they're not, they're ready to sign. And that's why they call it the sunset clause or the midnight clause, because they're ready to sign and they just look at the place of arbitration and they couldn't care less. Um, But it is very (laughs) important um, because my actually, and we will probably interview her on a later podcast, but a friend of mine named Shirin Saif, she did a conference yesterday about choosing Iran as a place of arbitration or using um, Iran law as the applicable law. And a lot of if if you're doing business like a Swedish company with an Iranian company, you need to figure out where the place of arbitration is because that could have such an impact. And that's what they were talking about is that the place of arbitration being Tehran, and even though they have a really great arbitration center there, you have no idea that type of laws or how it's going to impact you or when you're going to need access to those courts for, you know, recognition yeah. or enforcement or interim measures. Um, so I wish that these contractual or transactional lawyers did pay more attention to it because it's... But I personally have not been, you know, negotiating a
1: um, seat of arbitration Um Okay, I see. That sort of confirms my, my view from the outside as well, that it's not as much discussed as it should be. And this applies even more so for obvious reasons in the investment treaty context, which, uh, as it happens, is a thing that I'm writing a lot about in my research. Because in the typical investment treaty arbitration, there's no direct agreement between the disputing parties. Right. It's rather two states concluding sort of an open-ended treaty which forms the basis of an open-ended offer to arbitrate and then the investor accepts that offer by requesting arbitration. So the investor and the state rarely has a direct agreement, meaning that in theory the disputing, or sorry, the treaty parties, the states, should Agree to a place of arbitration in their arbitration clause, but they almost never do. Right. So it's up to somebody else. And I guess that's the same thing. If you don't agree to it in a commercial setting, you, you need still uh, a place of arbitration once a dispute arises. And if there's nothing in the agreement, you you either have to agree, and a post dispute when you're or already hate each other, and that's never going to happen. So normally, either an institution or a tribunal. Gets to designate the place of arbitration, which is a lot of, I wouldn't say power, but it has important, yeah, yeah, exactly. It has important implications. Too important to, to give up as a party. I, I'd like to argue, and that applies, as, as I said, especially in the treaty context. Partly because domestic courts are not as used to treaty-based challenges as they are to commercial challenges. They, the more frequently used, arbitral jurisdictions. They hear a lot of challenges against commercial arbitration awards, but even the most frequently used in, in the treaty context, context, which is Switzerland, Sweden, France, U.S., Canada, they've only had a handful of cases. So it's really, really important to do your research properly in a treaty-based non-ICSID arbitration. But I don't think that's been done. No, uh, at all, and I, States, have, at I
0: have been in, a, or not in a negotiation, but a discussion with the client deciding between ICSID and UNSA trial. And I'll tell you that that didn't come up because I think it's just too complicated for a client to wrap their head around it in that one meeting that you're going to have with them to discuss where to bring the case. And maybe it should be a more developed reason discussion. But I mean, the client is so
1: excited because it's too far down the line. No. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That. And there's so there's so much implication. And then it's like, okay, well, if we do UNSITRAL and you can choose whichever and we can advocate for a jurisdiction for the arbitrators to designate um what how are you going to consult your client on the different jurisdictions and those implications that's a lot of work and uh maybe the client would be interested in that but i don't think at that stage that the discussion is about where you're going to be able to do this after this nine year case is over they're just saying okay how much is it going to cost and what's what's my like quickest way um to get out of this arbitration successfully
1: yeah yeah even more support, I think, for, for my proposition that states in their future treaty making should be much better at specifying or at least giving a range of options for the place of arbitration, because it's not really something that goes into the consideration once you're in the dispute. Definitely. Okay, so around, in order to run this topic off, uh, I was thinking we should do a recurring segment on place of arbitration in which we... Call up people in different parts of the world, different cities, and maybe in particular cities that are not you know, your average arbitration seats, to talk to them about arbitrating in their jurisdiction. Amen. So, uh, a, fun, a fun way of getting more people's voices into this format. So if
0: you're listening, and we have received a lot of feedback from all over the world, um, we just figured out we're in a blog in Colombia, um, write to us. And tell us uh, what jurisdiction you're from and whether you're interested in participating. And we would love to have everyone get in touch.
1: Yeah, I already have a few interesting uh, cities in mind. And keep in mind the distinction between the legal seat and the seat of the hearings. Because we don't always only want to talk about the the hotels and the flight schedules. Because hearings can be elsewhere. We're also interested in, in the law at the place of arbitration. All right. We can move on.
0: And we are moving on, slowly but surely, to the uh, second subject we have, which I will field, which is the matter of the Redfern schedule of in evidence um, in arbitration. And when it comes to evidence in arbitration, I really think that it becomes a bit of the Wild West, Um, This is when every lawyer's background and legal experience comes into play and they bring their bad habits to the arbitration and they advocate for things that they're used to in their jurisdiction that are completely foreign to other people's jurisdiction. And so I feel like arbitration has tried very hard to, if we're going to continue this Western theme, uh, put a saddle on this wild horse of evidence. And what they've tried to do and what it's come down to Mostly, from what I've seen, is this Redfern schedule. Have you, you've, have you ever worked with a Redfern schedule, Joel?
1: In the mooting right context. Okay. So no, yeah, and also in yeah, in, also in one arbitration because it tends to come up pretty early when you're talking about document production. Exactly. But can I can I ask ask you another question just right back as of the course. resident scholar? Who's Redfern?
0: It's Alan Redfern, and he wrote the book Redfern and Hunter that everyone knows. If you've If you need 20 minutes to learn about arbitration, I would pick up that book. Uh, Good. We should uh, interview him, actually. Uh, But, yeah, so he I invented this reference schedule. And when you say it like that, it seems like this is going to be some uh, patented uh, IP, you know, document. But it's actually just a table. And you have your... Um, request and then you have your your reference to why you think it's material and relevant and then you have your objections and your references and then you have your uh, decision by the tribunal or you have a reply to the objection and then you have the decision by the tribunal. It's a simple simple table but what happens here is that and this comes from an article that I read called Reinventing the Redfern um, by Sam Luttrell and Peter Harris in the Journal of International Arbitration. And they say this is where the costs of the arbitration and case strategy come together in this pinnacle moment. Um, why do they say that? Because getting documents from your client and reviewing documents from the opposing party is a very, very, very cost intensive and labor intensive exercise. Yeah. Um,
1: really, how how much would you say based on your experience is uh, for, for for a relatively junior associate such such, such as yourself? I can how tell much you I can tell you percentage for one... is spent on
0: this. Oh, uh, I mean, this could take up a hundred percent of your time at that phase in the arbitration. And I can tell you for one request, and it was even I think a sub request, I spent three full weeks like billing close to you know six to eight hours a day. Um, reviewing documents that were received under one request. Um, And so that's just to give you an example. And then you have the, you know, numbers of requests. You know, you have up to over 100 requests or, I mean, they try to limit it more. And then smaller commercial arbitrations, you'll just have like 17 requests. So it's not that big. But if you're in the investment context, it can get a very healthy amount Um, So then you have this like you're getting into this American style of discovery, right, where you're going into fishing expeditions and you're trying to broaden the scope of each request. to, You know, how much can we get in? Um, So the the general consensus is that document production should not go to this level, but that it should be um, limited, which for me as an American, I have to fight myself. And this is what I'm saying about bringing your old, you know, trying to teach an old dog new tricks is. (laughs) there's a way, there's a document that we know that they have, or we presume that they have, and we have to formulate our doc request in such a way to get that document. But it's not necessarily that they'll give it to us, first of all, that they're bound to give it to us, second of all, or third, that uh, that they won't just give it up voluntarily. Um, Where in the US, it's something kind of like, you know,
1: a doc dump, um, where you just give them everything you have. Um, but this raises the, the tangential question on what standards apply. Maybe you're coming to that and I'm jumping too far ahead. No. But the reference schedule is just, a, just, but I mean, it's a schedule in the sense that you list documents uh, or evidence that you're interested in and argue uh, why you should have access to them. But then the arbitrators have to rule on your...
0: Exactly. So if we like Requests. kind of go from left to right, so you have the request and we can talk about that first. Um your request has to be limited in scope um to a certain to a reasonable amount so you can't just request every email sent between Joe Schmo and Jane Doe uh for the for the past 15 years if it's not materially irrelevant to a specific point that you need to prove. Um, so you have to say, I need document, I need all emails exchanged between this guy and this guy concerning technical issues with the blank and blank line, electrical line, um, because, and then you go in your next column and you say, this is relevant and material because in one of the emails we are, you know, and they have to be fairly certain that that either exists or you have a reason to believe that that document exists, um, that we have reason to believe that this document would contain um, an admission by the counterparty that they were late in their delivery um so you have to limit your request to exactly the point that you're trying to prove and so the tribunal's job when they end up making that ruling is and your objections to that request is okay that's they're asking for too much um, if that's what they're trying to prove we can just give them documents in 2008 because that's when the late delivery was for example um, yeah.
1: So but what I was getting at, maybe that's too scholarly a point. is oh, okay. What standards then typically do the arbitrators apply in making this decision? Is it a uh, gut feeling, normal, you know, arbitral discretion?
0: Reasonableness. I, c- I could be wrong, but I think yeah, it's a reasonableness standard. Um, there is no. I mean, you have the IBA
1: guidelines to
0: like help you.
1: Um, and the IBA rules. Good. Good thing to mention that there are this this. Uh, soft law instruments available out there in in the world of arbitration and and the IBA which had the conference in Sydney in a few weeks yeah is is normally one of the the big organizations in making that kind of soft law and they they have made rules on the taking of evidence that are often in international proceedings either uh, by virtue of a decision by the tribunal made to be the, the applicable standards or they are there somewhere in the background, like informing the, the, the parties and the tribunal.
0: Right. No, exactly. And, and also in the IBA guidelines, they have um, a it's kind of like the only ethical code that is international. So you can't conceal documents, suppress documents, destroy documents, or yeah. make any improper requests. Um, so it does regulate right. your behavior as a lawyer as well, which I think is interesting. <clears throat> but I just want to talk about before we get into the reforms that have been discussed. I just quickly want to discuss some tactics that people use. Ooh, um, fun for it happy it, fun time already. <laughs> I know it is pretty fun. <laughs> I it's like a battlefield out there. Um, so you. Uh, again your request that it's an art form to create the proper request you know how can we make this as general as possible by but still showing that it is limited in scope to the materialness and the relevance that we're trying to prove um and that can be done a lot with sub so sub questions so you have one this is really you're
1: you're giving out trade secrets now this is the craft things that they don't teach you at at the, at the universities, so this is really... And I don't even know if I learned this on the job. This is
0: also like interrogatories in the US or, you know, these. It's, it's always this type of game. Like, how much can we get in? And that's where you kind of get the Trojan horse, right? So you kind of throw in 105 requests, but the real one that is super broad is going to be number 35. And hopefully they get so tired on the way down that they just say, okay, that's fine, that's <laughs> fine, that's fine. And then you get your Trojan horse in there. Um, And then, of course, you have um, the on the opposite side, you have the tactic of, well, maybe this is overly broad. So we should actually consent to this one so we can just dock dump 50,000 documents to them in the Russian language. And none of them speak Russian on their legal team. And we can just, you know, keep them busy for five weeks when they're preparing for their reply submission. Um, So that. And there's no obligation for you to produce, and the you know the the tribunal will say that you have to produce the documents at a certain time, but sometimes you can make the argument that okay, these are so many documents we need to submit it on a rolling basis, which the other side will probably agree to because they have no other choice, and yeah. then you start this like rolling document production, which you kind of like can use your with reasonable latitude on how quickly you need to be rolling out these documents. Um, so th- there's actually on both sides this these types of tactics
1: of uh, how this to... This is why people in general hate lawyers.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was watching something the other day and it was, it was a, a case with like five defendants with five different lawyers. It was a criminal case. And all the defendants went to jail on a, some conspiracy thing. And they all blamed their lawyers because they were so zealous, ze- such zealous advocates of their own client that they forgot to um, coordinate with each other. Um, so it was it was a, it was it wasn't a good show for the for the lawyers. Um, so then we have these reforms. Okay, so I mean, this is getting a bit out of hand. We need to have the tribunals kind of like regulate this in their decisions. Um, and one thing that has um, come up. Well, the reason why there needs to be a reform is because we're now getting into it, exactly as you say why we hate lawyers. It's becoming a legal argument match instead of a commercial. Reality. So it's not like we need these documents and this is not going to be burdensome on the. Oh, that's the other standard that we were talking about. Um, It can't be overly broad or overly burdensome to the other party. Um, I forgot to mention that. So, um, yeah, that is an important point. Hopefully everyone continues listening till I had this revelation. Uh, So it can't be overly (laughs) burdensome. And that's something that you can bring up as far as cost, but also time. Um, But that's the only safeguard against that. So, and... uh, Unless there's, but then you have the lawyers discussing what's overly broad and overly burdensome. So it becomes, again, a lawyer's game in interpreting this stuff. And so one of the reforms says at the end of the redfern schedule, they should add a column. And this is in the article I mentioned add a column for the cost for compliance. So they can say, we can comply with this. Oh, interesting. We can comply with this, but it's going to cost us $500,000. Three associates, and that includes three associates full time for three weeks, plus the in-house counsel, plus the, you know, the cost of getting this together. And that's going to be $500,000. And then it's kind of like an indicator for the tribunal to say, okay, is this worth it or is this not worth it? um, Or can we limit it in some way? Um, So it kind of gives them another indicator on uh, whether they should continue.
1: That's right. But it also gives them another thing to judge or determine if it's a reasonable yeah. claim or yeah a reasonable exactly. indication so it's another thing that they I mean it, it asks a lot of the tribunal because they have to be able to to make the call like okay is this just another way of, of uh, you know trying to make it more complicated by adding numbers that are not realistic in order to avoid having to be yeah. like, ordered to to produce. But, but I, I see the, 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 the point in a, it. The
0: attempt. I know, because I was thinking that too. I was like, okay, so the lawyers are now just going to get
1: even more creative on how they're going to frame this. Uh, exactly. Without yeah. as, soon as, as soon as you open up another avenue for potential tactics Advocate. and potential disputes. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: and then the last thing that I wanted to bring up was that you can um, seek recovery for costs um, for the arbitration to include the costs that it took for you to produce. Um, Obviously that goes into your legal fees, but as far as the client itself, um, the amount of work that they've had to do. I've also um, had a case where they did produce 100,000 documents all in a language that no one could understand. So we were forced to engage an expert to go through those um, documents and then produce a summary report. Um, That type of cost could be some of the costs included um, in for the arbitration, as far as
1: but this, this is only to the extent that those costs are not deemed to be reasonable, right? Y- or is it any any costs associated with producing documents?
0: Well, yeah, I mean the costs will eventually, in the word, have to be decided whether they're reasonable or not. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but I think it would be reasonable to say we got a hundred thousand documents we couldn't understand. We have to engage someone else. Yeah. Okay. Of course. Good. Uh, so then, and that I won't get into this, but there should be some reforms. Oh, actually, there should be some reforms in e discovery. Some one funny an- anecdote. So, a friend, a colleague of mine named Peter Mielenbach, who you know, Joel, he was at the Milan IBA conference and they discussed the Redford schedule there. And the big revelation they had at this conference, because it's usually done in a landscape page. Format, if you know what that is. So the long yeah. ways or when you're in elementary school in the United States, you call it the hot dog way. Um, and what they say is that they should flip the red fern so that because what happens is and this is so uh, really lame in disputes. But what happens is when it's the landscape direction in these columns in a table. The columns become so squished that the text becomes like four words per line. And if you're writing like legal arguments, you have about three to four pages for your legal argument that is only like a paragraph. Um, so they, the big revelation they had is that they should make it a long ways or portrait uh, document and take away the table or have a different format of the table and just have it kind of be one row request and then the next row uh, so instead of
1: it being called, that's interesting. Very enough. elementary, like basic, a basic way of, of improving. Yeah. But is it? I I've drafted a few and read a few procedural orders when these matters have been discussed, and I cannot recall if it's specified generally in the procedural orders which format the red fern schedule should be in, or is it just assumed that if it's no, it's red a fern su- schedule, that, that implies that it's in landscape format.
0: Yeah. There's a there's a f- red fern schedule format. If I got okay. a red fern in a in a portrait, I would be like, who is this amateur? <laughs> but maybe <laughs> so I'm gonna- it has to be
1: decided or agreed upon. I'm gonna start it.
0: I'm gonna start it. I think it's uh, very helpful. All right, well, let's move on to happy fun time. And we are back with the third topic, which is arbitration and pop culture. My favorite topic, actually. <laughs> in general. And yeah, I, I do like a good pop culture reference.
1: Me too. But it's very rare, isn't it, though? And I, and also, I think we will probably get to this because I'm assuming your impression as well is that arbitration has a bad rep in, in pop culture. We need a good PR person. Yes, we for definitely sure. do. <laughs> <laughs> So when I was thinking about what to talk about here, I once again realized that there's a young OGMID thread on this, which I think justifies just a, a, a shout out once again to the OGMID thingy. I didn't explain it last time I talked about it, but there's an, an email list called OGMID, O-G-E-M-I-D, which was launched way back when, like prior to phones having access to internet, I think, in the early 21st century, sometime, uh, as, a, as an email list where practitioners initially in oil, gas, and energy arbitration, hence the, the acronym in the name, to talk about like topics in an email form where each email sent automatically goes out to every recipient on the list. And that has now expanded into being like a general discussion club for arbitration people all over the world. I don't know how many thousand Thousands of people are on it, but it's primarily for senior people, and it also costs quite a bit, I think. So there's now this young OG mid, which is easier to access for younger practitioners and academics, which I highly recommend. You are not on the list, Brian, right? I'm not. Way to blow up my spot, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I will
0: be. I will be joining. No, but I have I was on OG mid for a little bit because uh, it came with my... Um, Employment. And it was really, really, really good stuff. Like great, some weirdos, but uh, really good developed arguments and people just wanting to have a good uh, tit for tat intellectually.
1: Yeah. And it's moderated, I think. Right. One must point out. So it's uh, usually uh, at this point when it's been going on forever, it's pretty sophisticated and not a lot of spam and stuff like that. But anyway, on the young OGMID list, like a year ago, this very topic arbitration in pop culture was discussed because the moderator of the email list had a colleague who was writing an article uh, which didn't really touch upon this but i don't can i can't remember why but this colleague of hers wanted a footnote in the article referencing uh, you know times when arbitration has been mentioned or referenced in pop culture so they crowdsourced this to the community of young ojimi people like do you have any favorite occasions. So uh, we kind of used some of the responses on this thread to do our research and look at things that were mentioned uh, in this email thread. And one thing that I looked at is the TV show Silicon Valley. Which and I've
0: never season... seen. I've never seen you that aren't... show. What, oh, what's okay. it about besides Silicon Valley? it's
1: it, It's set in Silicon Valley. And it is about a, a group of nerds who uh, sort of leave the, a thinly veiled fictional Google called Huli to start their <laughs> own startup. And it really just makes fun of of Silicon Valley, and like you know the sexually frustrated geeks, the lack of women, and uh, the, the nerdy environments that they are in, with a lot of comedians in the leading roles. So it's it's pretty funny. That's that funny. And in in season two, episode nine, which is titled binding arbitration which is another thing just you know straight off the bat they're annoying me because of course arbitration <laughs> is binding and this is... it's redundant <laughs> yeah, it is. and also because it keeps coming up in like in the general way I think the way that people especially in the US think of arbitration is as a way for sneaky commercial actors to get out of court and instead, force weaker yes. parties yes. into this binding secret court. This is, you know, the, the whole movie Erin Brockovich, is basically about this, like how evil corporations, instead of going into public court, they they trick poor people into arbitrating, and then everything is ruined. Yep. But in the in the episode, binding arbitration, these uh, guys, then the huli the uh, ex employees who now run their own startup they're accused of infringing on proprietary software that Huli alleges that they developed while they were working for Huli. So classic case that most dispute lawyers know about. Right. Uh, employees who, who start their own things and then the bigger company that they used to work for claims it's actually theirs. It's a little bit unclear uh, what the legal nature of, of this infringement is. It's probably not a patent case because that would be probably not arbitrable. But anyway, in a plot twist, they eventually end up in binding arbitration <laughs> advised by their lawyers. And there's a funny line in the, in the beginning of the episode where the, the people, the guys working for the startup, talk about this. So one asks, so binding arbitration, what's that? And the other one responds, well, it's like a trial, but massively accelerated. Next, next week, we're going in front of a retired judge to argue our entire case over just two days. Oh, oh, so that's the way they sort of frame this arbitration. I, I wish, Silicon Valley. <laughs> but let me ask you this as a Californian friend. Um, the main characters, of course, then run a startup, so they have little to no money to fight this case against uh, the giant. Mm-hmm. So instead of using an established lawyer, they go to a charming but obviously super shady character who's been disbarred in California uh-huh. due to several convictions for drug possession and sex with minors. So That'll do it. <laughs> he's, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's obviously disbarred. Uh-huh. And as such, he says he is prevented from appearing, quote, in open court in California. Yeah, But he can, of course, do only arbitrations.
0: That, is that true? I mean, I think that's actually true because you don't have to be licensed. You don't have to be a licensed attorney to represent someone in arbitration. Um, In Sweden, as you know, we don't really
1: have like monopoly attorneys do not have to be in the bar association in any context, basically, apart from defending people in criminal trials. So I didn't know it was that that there's a difference between court and arbitration in terms of bar admittance.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's almost like the English like barrister solicitor type of thing where you need to be a licensed attorney to represent someone. You can do pro se and represent yourself, of course. Um, yeah, you can't have someone representing you.
1: Okay, so. but at least it's not an obviously uh, like incorrect.
0: No, 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 no.
1: It's it's definitely true. Okay, I'm just thinking so of then exceptions. So uh, we don't have to talk uh, too much in detail because then I think it it is pretty accurately described for the rest of the episode, which in in a traditional manner plays out during the hearings, and you have document dumps and surprise witnesses and everything that you generally have in in like legal. Fictional legal proceedings and on, on TV, pretty well depicted though during the main hearing, actually. So, compared to many other things, they do a pretty good job, I think. That's good. I can actually recommend it because it's, as far as I know, it's the only episode that's entirely about arbitration. Or you watched another show, yeah. I watched The Good
0: Wife, uh, which is ABC. So, wait, ABC is what
1: it's a good TV show, yeah. I eh yeah okay fine but ABC <laughs> Maybe, gets me well, as, as it concerns non-arbitration matters yeah I mean
0: ABC is owned by Disney so you have to kind of take that into account when you look at these things because it it gets a little Disney at moments and a little bit theatrical but um, yeah so I watched two episodes of The Good Wife actually um, and the first one had to do with exit arbitration actually uh, and it came up with and it came up with a lot of interesting elements that we've talked about on this podcast. First of all, there was like a side court order to freeze the assets of one of the companies that was trying to sell off their assets. Um, and this is in season two, if anyone wants to look it up. Um, and so we get that like domestic court order element in it. And then you also have, um, a human rights element in the case because there was, uh, The company, they didn't want to give compensation to the company because they were in violation of human rights. So I thought a lot of their legal um, analysis was pretty okay. I have a question for you. So they had to do a fair market analysis of a company. So basically what happened was there was a Venez- Venezuelan oil company that had just been oh, nationalized that's right.
1: with uh, Hugo Chavez. With Hugo Chavez in the episode
0: or a f- fictional Hugo Chavez. And it's so funny you never see. <laughs> it's so funny cuz Hugo Chavez is on the TV and he doesn't show his head and he's just like yelling in Spanish and then it's like <laughs> and it's also really funny talking about languages and arbitration. No one in the room understands Spanish except for American career, America for or whatever her name is, sisterhood of the traveling cats. Yeah. Betty. Ugly Betty, she's like, Oh, I speak Spanish. And everyone's like, Oh, the intern. And it was like, so funny, because it's like, everyone is an idiot. Like no one on the team speaks a second language, um, except in a later season, they someone speaks a second language. Um, but so they had to do a value. So the company gets nationalized, and they had to do an evaluation of the fair market value of that company. And they said that ICSID. They're like, we're waiting for ICSID to do the evalu the no, value. Don't
1: they say I C S I D? Yeah, they don't, they don't actually actually ICSID. say ICSID. Don't <laughs> bad do. research on behalf of the writers.
0: It's cute. Um. So, do can ICSID do an evaluation, a fair market evaluation of your company? No. Yeah, I I didn't. I was like, Shh. maybe there's some element of the World Bank that can go in here, but. That was I wrong. wouldn't say too much. There might
1: be, but I mean, not within the frames of an arbitration, typically. That would be strange. That's for the tribunal to do. Applying yeah. like the applicable law, typically international law. And if it's an expropriation, you have a pretty sophisticated ways of, of uh, ascertaining yeah. the value of a company. So, I mean, I shouldn't say too much. There might be, as you say, there might be like a branch of the World Bank available for this very purpose. The World it, Bank is way bigger than but
0: I didn't I think, think it was so. right off the bat. Um, so basically, it, the good thing it showed in that episode was that they there was a lot of settlements and negotiations and very creative solutions. So it showed arbitration in that context. But my favorite quote was someone was like, "It's like a Woody Allen movie in here," and I thought that was uh, pretty funny because it was. <laughs> it related. was like Hugo Chavez on the screen, and like everyone was yelling in different languages. It was like pretty funny. Uh, do you have another? I
1: don't. I, don't, I, I yeah. Sorry, I can't really imagine. Gujjaba Chavez being part of a conference call in an arbitration. <laughs> well, that's any head of state actually <laughs> yeah, being involved? Exactly. In, that was a bit unrealistic. Yeah, definitely. But it's it, it's good. Uh, this episode in particular, insofar as it it does not depict arbitration as a way to force people out of court. It's just like any other legal proceedings, and it happens to be in in arbitration. Exactly. Do you have another TV show? No, because I gave you all the I, other things. I have another one. To look at.
0: You have? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have two other ones, actually, because you gave me so much homework. But I can do these a little bit quicker. Did uh, you watch Star Trek, as I told you? No. God, no. <laughs> I have a life. Uh I I haven't seen the movies. Those are pretty good. Um, So there's another one, and we'll go through this quickly. Uh, A runner needed to run a race, and she got an endorsement deal, but then she tested positive for um, a performance... also The Good Wife. Also The Good Wife. Performance... All three of these are The Good Wife. Uh, Performance-enhancing drugs, so she lost her endorsement deal, so they had to go to CAS, which is the court of arbitration for sports, uh, which is always exciting. Um, And so they go to this court of arbitration and it's so, this is when I say ABCs like Disney because they walk in and the judges are all speaking French because it takes place. That court of arbitration for sports is in Switzerland. Yeah. And so they come in and they're all like, oh,
1: and they're
0: like speaking French. And then they're like, and of course, the American is like, excuse me, uh, this is an American. And opposing counsel speaks French as well. And he goes, excuse me, but I don't speak French. It was very, like, entitled and very, like, American oh, in Paris. And, but also, they find this out in the hearing, that French is the language <laughs> right. of the proceedings. Well, he had to take it over last minute, which was also very strange. Okay. Um, so there's, like, some surprise evidence. come. Well, and here's the other thing that was very strange, is that they held it on the side of a, of a running track, and then they had like a bunch of flags from different countries behind the tribunal. So they, Outdoors? <laughs> no, in an indoor running track. So they held the arbitration <laughs> on the side of an indoor track. And I was like, okay, we get it that it's an arbitra- a sports arbitration, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that they're like kicking a soccer ball during, you know.
1: Breaks. That's why so many people want to do sports arbitration, and there are 400 master's degrees in sports arbitration. It's the Goodwife's fault. Yeah, it is definitely. Uh, cool. They, it, it can be in the, um, it the baseball. really case. cool, but it
0: definitely was super unrealistic and very and then one of the good one of the good wife's side of the case, the one representing the runner, she ends up speaking French and then she catches them saying something wrong. And then anyway, that was an interesting one. But the final one, also the good wife, the final one was really weird. Um, and that was Christian conciliation. And that was a arbitration. Oh, this
1: I remember. Based I, I, I've of, seen
0: this. Biblical principles. And I started laughing, and I was actually very intrigued by this. Um, I was raised with faith, but definitely not this kind of faith. Um, and so, and it's real. So I looked it up, I Googled it, and there is actually arbitration based off biblical principles. And they're not called arbitrators, they're called peacemakers. And it's based off the Matthew process, which is the only thing that you have to do is make sure that you tell the truth with God as your witness. Jesus.
1: And when you say that this exists and is a thing, does that mean that it's like tight knit communities where you divide like spousal assets after somebody deceased? Or is it like an actual thing employed also in commercial context? Do you know? It's everything.
0: Um, So it's the Institute for Christian Conciliation is the one I looked up. And it's you can solve any problem because everything should be, you know, resolved through the biblical principles. And it's called the Matthew process. And they interesting at that. Well, yeah, because they were doing um, some farmer was using the seeds of some someone else's farm. So it was a commercial context that it came up. And although it sounds
1: very biblical. Yeah, exactly. sounds like a from <laughs> Well, it was so
0: funny because they were inter- they were interviewing a witness and they're like, "She's lying," and then the peacemaker or the arbitrator turns to her and is like, "Are you telling the truth?" And she goes, "Yes." And he, I don't think he said these words, but basically like, "Do you swear on God that you tell the truth?" And she's like, "Yes." He's like. Then she's telling the truth, and then then he says something, and they're like, he's lying. And it's like, if I assume she's telling the truth, then I assume that you're telling the truth. And they were like, oh okay. And it was like, angels. Super efficient procedure. And I don't mean to like denigrate this. You know, all types of dispute resolution are welcome, and the you know the Institute of Christian Conciliation is probably doing great work. But it just is. um,
1: It was very interesting to see it portrayed. They do you think they have someone on staff or someone maybe an expert on retainer for the writing team because they have to come up with so many legal plots that are not which is a i mean that's a benefit of this show in particular compared to like the you know boston legal ali mcbeal run of the mill legal shows that the good wife really explores other types of dispute resolution outside of just court yeah they must have some sort of research input or
0: oh yeah no definitely and they have a bunch out there, of there's Harvard there's an,
1: students an arbitration lawyer probably on retainer advising them yeah 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 Def- but didn't teach them how to say exit <laughs> uh
0: but what about uh you said that you had maybe something to bring up about the reputation of arbitration and other pop culture things that were getting a bad rap do you have any examples of that
1: no, I, that's maybe just what I started with, with the Irem Brockovich thing right. in this general. I, I, I feel this is maybe outside of pop culture, too. When I listen to podcasts, especially American podcasts, but increasingly so uh, in Swedish, which is my native tongue. Uh, and I think this is in the Swedish context or the European context is prompted by the investment arbitration discussions relating to TTIP and CETA and all these things. And in the U.S. context, I think it's more of a domestic discussion, but they have in common that they feel or argue that arbitration is uh, an an inherently bad thing because it deprives courts and the public from uh, from getting access to important disputes. Right. Right. Which, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying that it's not so. But it's very, very rare in the in the general setting outside of our tiny sphere of international arbitration people that you hear a more nuanced discussion of of the role that arbitration plays. For example, going back to our first segment with place of arbitration, that it's not a way to get out of court because aside from ICSID, every arbitration is supervised by a domestic court and it has to comply with domestic legislation and norms defined by uh, the the legislature in in at the place of arbitration so it's not you know it's super secret outside of court thingy really right. right
0: i heard the same thing on a podcast i was listening to called democracy now great podcast very liberal and um i used to listen to it as my daily walk to work news and i kind of used that as like my jumping off point with political discussions until i heard an interview with julian assange Um, Talking about TTIP and the problems with it, and then just talking about international arbitration, specifically investment arbitration. Um, And it was, you know, all these points about restricting the right to regulate for a state, um, hiding behind closed doors, commercial lawyers deciding with other commercial lawyers about cases that would cost taxpayers, that was another, taxpayer money. uh, Millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars. Um, and that was the wrap. And then I listened to it, and I was like, Oh, I can't even imagine what the rest of this podcast is feeding me. Um, yeah, <laughs> but that is,
1: yeah, I, I've been in that exact same position several times as well, and I've been waiting for the critical questions that I expect from the people running the podcast or or even even The economist, which which maybe a year ago did something on ISDs, which was also like, this is. For me, this is deviating from what I expect from this publisher in particular. So it, it also made me think, like, what else am I missing out on? If if no critical questions or no uh, additional perspectives are brought up by the the interviewer in the setting, yeah, is that the same in other instances as well? So am I missing out on information, yeah. that is non-arbitration related because they obviously botched the the get, getting more perspectives into this particular arbitration-related segment, yeah yeah i thought it was interesting and i've gotten
0: in fights with people across the dinner table about you know isds and how it's this awful monster and we should all stop and that's just coming from their you know regurgitation of what of what they hear on their podcasts or yeah and then again
1: you're speaking from maybe not the optimal position as well being like inside the system making a lot of money out of it it's really it's hard to uh, I think <laughs> divorce yourself wow. from the. From the but th- let's not open the door into like the. We we let's do that in a like a separate segment or maybe a separate episode talking about reforms of uh, public legitimacy and and okay. how how investment arbitration specifically maybe should should look into the in, in the future because that's a, a topic in and of itself I think.
0: Yeah, and if anyone out there has a topic for us to cover that they think would be fun, comment on an episode, tweet at us, tweet at Joel. Um it's at the arb station and uh or tweet at Joel or go on our website, thearbitrationstation.com leave a comment in one of the episodes, or you can email us um at thearbitrationstation at gmail.com. Is that correct? That is
1: correct. Okay. Uh and we should maybe also end this um by thanking first of all the young arbitrator of Sweden for providing us with uh, the microphones. That's right. And we should also thank Jan Kunster, a great, uh, great guy, a friend of ours, whose name we cannot pronounce properly, who helps us with the editing. And I would also like to mention this guy that we have no idea who he is, who's called David Sestay. Do you know who that is? No. He's the guy who made the jingles.
0: Oh, there you go.
1: I love those It's an open jingles. source thing. I found them online somewhere where you could use them. And he's an uh, I think he's Hungarian, a composer. We should drop him a note and thank him for providing us with with, uh, jingly music for free.
0: Yes, we should. Well, then that wraps it up for this episode of The Arbitration Station. See you guys later.